Our children like to be seen, don't they? They do. They do. They love to be watched. Um, I'll bet you once said to your mom, Mom, watch me. Right? Watch me. Watch me at the park. Watch me at T-ball. Watch me at gymnastics. Watch me at the school play. You know when our children are up there standing on the risers there. Who's the first person they look out to? Uh, Right. Watch me. Look at me. And mom watches every time. All of us know what it's like to be a child. We want to be seen by our moms. That said, I'll bet there's more than one mother here who wonders if she is ever seen. Uh, There comes a point in time when um, mom begins to wonder if she's invisible. A mom by the name of Nicole Johnson talks about this. She wrote a beautiful article titled, The Invisible Mother. Here's her story. She said, one day I was walking my son to school. I was holding his hand and we were about to cross the street when the crossing guard said to him, who's that with you, young fella? He shrugged his shoulders and said, nobody. Nobody, Nicole wrote. What do you mean nobody? My son is only five. But as we crossed the street, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm a nobody? Then she later recalled how she would walk into a room and no one would notice She said, I'd say something to my family like, can you please turn down the TV? And nothing would happen. No one would even get get up or even make a move for the remote. I'd stand there for a minute. I would say it again, a little louder. Would someone please turn the TV down? Nothing. Nicole said, that's when I started putting the pieces together. I don't think anybody can see me. I'm invisible. It all began to make sense. The blank stares, the lack of response, the way one of the kids would walk into the room while I'm on the phone and ask to be taken to the store. Inside, I think, can't you see I'm on the phone? Obviously not. No one can see if I'm on the phone or cooking or sweeping the floor or even standing on my head in the corner. No one can see me because I'm the invisible mom. Some days I'm only a pair of hands. Can you fix this? Can you tie this? Can you open this? Some days I'm a clock. What time is it? Uh, Still other days, I'm a channel guide. Where's the Disney channel? Or I'm a crystal ball. Where'd my other sock go? Where's my phone? What's for dinner? Hands, a clock, a crystal ball, but always invisible. She said, "I, I was certain that these were the hands that once held books. And these were the eyes that once studied history. And this is the mind that once graduated with a master's degree. But, but now they've all vanished into the peanut butter. Never to be seen again. She's going, going, she's gone. The invisible mother. Anybody here feel that way? (laughs) Well, today's scripture is for those who feel unseen, unappreciated, invisible, even abandoned. Today's scripture concerns a mother whose world treated her as if she were invisible. Her name is Hagar. And she is this this woman who was unseen in her world. A single mom. But hers is the story of invisibility 
and the God who sees. If you have your Bibles, would you please meet me in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, where we read about the life of Hagar. Genesis chapter 16. Let's read the whole chapter. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word. So here we meet Hagar, this this immigrant from Egypt. She's in the household of Abram and Sarah, Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah. And Hagar's life takes place in the larger story of God's dealings with his people. God had called Abram from Ur and sent him to the land of promise. And God had promised to make a great nation from Abraham and Sarah. And through them a blessing to all. And the miracle was that both Abraham and Sarah were far past the season of childbirth. But God would do this because God is faithful. And after 10 years, 
Abraham and Sarah began to wonder. So they hatched a plan whereby they thought they would help God out. Sarah said to Abram, take my servant, impregnate her so that I would have a child. Now, in the ancient Near East, this arrangement was legal and common, and yet it wasn't wise Because you see, it represented a human solution to a divine promise. And whenever we try to accomplish God's plans in the world's ways, we end up complicating our days. And that's what's going on here. As Eve took the fruit, gave it to Adam, who thoughtlessly accepted... So Sarah took her servant and gave her to Abram, who thoughtlessly accepted... So Sarah took her servant, and and in both cases, both cases demonstrated a human-centered way of striving for the things of God. And, And by the way, did you notice in these verses here that neither Sarah nor Abraham call her by her name? To them, she's just my servant or your servant. Did you notice that? Talk about being invisible. To them, she's just a utility. She's a commodity. She's a means to an end. But verse 3 tells us her name was Hagar the Egyptian. Now stop right there. Who were the original readers of the book of Genesis? Were they not the Hebrew people who had just been liberated from Egypt? So Hagar is from the nation where they had once been slaves themselves. So Hagar is now an outsider to the Hebrew people, just as the Hebrew people had been outsiders in the nation of Egypt. She represents Israel's former life in Egypt. In other words, Abraham and Sarah are trying to help God in the way of Egypt. And of course, the worldly way works at first. Verse 4, she conceived. But then, Sarah, whose idea this was in the first place, is now furious with envy. Verse 5 says, this is a wrong. May the wrong Literally, violence done to me be on you. In other words, it became clear to both Sarah and Hagar that Hagar's pregnant womb heightened Sarah's barren womb. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. Too late. Verse 6 says, Sarah dealt harshly with her, and Hagar fled from her. Hagar. She's trapped in a system that renders her invisible. No rights, no dignity, no freedom, no choice, no sense of belonging. And she's had enough, so she flees. In fact, one possible meaning of Hagar's name is flight. She takes flight. She she flees from a household where her body has been used to produce offspring for an infertile couple. Did, Did Abraham and Sarah even... Notice when she left? Well, God did. And in verse 7, God sees her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Even before Hagar speaks, 
the angel of the Lord knows where she is and who she is. We've, we've read her name and now we hear her name. Verse 8, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? That sounds strangely familiar to Genesis 3, doesn't it? Remember? When the Lord said to the man and the woman in the garden, where are you? I'm fleeing. That, that, that wasn't the whole question, though, was it? The whole question was not just where you're coming, but where are you going? And Hagar can't answer that, can she? Is she going back to Egypt? Does she even know where she wants to go? Does she even know what she wants? She knows what she doesn't want. She doesn't want to be treated harshly for what isn't her fault. She doesn't want to be treated like a non-person. She doesn't want to be treated like she's invisible. And then the angel says, I want you to go back. Go back. The desert is no place for you. The desert's no place for the baby. It's not safe here. I see you. I see the child. I see a great nation in your womb. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. God says, I see you, Hagar. Hagar realizes her greatest need when she meets the God who satisfies that need. And so she names him Elroy. I, I have seen the God who sees. I'm not invisible. God sees me. Question, question for us. What name would you give God if you could? The God who loves, the God who comforts, the God who is silent, the God who stays, the God who is faithful, the God who forgives, the God of a second chance. What would that name be? Well, listen, whatever you choose would actually say as much about your need as it would the character of God. For it is through our need that we experience God in our deepest way. Hagar, who feels insignificant and invisible, is in fact very significant and very much seen in the eyes of the Lord. God sees her as the matriarch of a nation. And did you know this? Hagar has the longest conversation of any woman and almost any man in the entirety of the Old Testament with God. Hagar, the Egyptian maid, is the only person in the Bible who gives God a name. Up to this point, God names himself. He identifies himself as Elohim, the creator. Yahweh, I am who I am. El Shaddai, the Almighty. I mean, these are vast, majestic, big sky names of the Lord. But in Hagar's vast wilderness, she needs an intimate God. And she sees that God sees her. I have now seen the God who sees me, Hagar declares. And she names the well as a memorial, Bir Lahairoi. The well 
of the living one who sees me. What a difference it is in life to know that there is a God who sees. To know that the God who sees is the God who cares. I'm thinking of Zephaniah 3:17. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. You know that feeling? Do you know what it's like to be quieted by the love of God where you just dare to sit still and be loved and seen by a holy God? Oh, the psalmist does. Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2. I do, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. That, that God sees means that we're significant, we're safe, we're understood, we are visible, and we are free. That's right, free. Won't that be the glory of the new heavens and the new earth? When we will, without sin, without suffering, without Satan, we will be and we will live under the watchful, attentive sight of our Heavenly Father who enjoys us as we enjoy our children and grandchildren at play in the park. God enjoys not just the Hebrew people, but all people. For in Genesis chapter 12, God says, Abram, through you, all nations will be blessed. Egypt too. So just as loving parents pleasure at their children's play, so does our heavenly father. Living under his joyful, watchful eyes is unshakable security. I don't know if the thought of God seeing you makes you cower or fills you with courage. But for Hagar, it gave her the courage to go back to a difficult situation. We see a God who sees. We see a God who sees. And it's about this time when someone may say, well, if God sees, why doesn't he do something about it? He sees my pain. Why doesn't he fix it? Well, actually, he's, he is. He is. You see, this chapter takes place in the larger story of Abraham and Sarah. So Genesis 16 takes place in the larger story of God's attentive redemption. Look, just because you can't see God doesn't mean he's not there. And just because you think he's not there doesn't mean he doesn't see you. Just because I can't see him doing anything immediately doesn't mean he's not doing something. So to be seen doesn't mean you don't fall. The Bible doesn't say no sparrow falls. The Bible says he sees the sparrow that falls. Falling is part of life in this sinful, broken world. Our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, chose independence from God, which led to the fall. And this world has been broken. And we're a part of that brokenness. <laughs> and when, the, when, when there's the fall, there leads, 
There then is nakedness and shame, and then that leads to hiding. And, and so we hide ourselves so God won't see us. So we want God to see us, but because of this sinful, broken, fallen world, we hide. And, but he still sees, and he's still at work restoring. Would you look at verse 11? Behold, the angel says to Hagar, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. Now where will we hear those words in scripture. Yeah. One day another angel will announce similar words to another servant girl, Mary. You shall conceive. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. God sent his son who saw. Jesus saw. He saw a Samaritan woman, an outsider. At a well, he saw a widow giving her offering at the temple. He saw the Syrophoenician woman begging to him on behalf of her daughter. He saw Jerusalem and wept. He saw them though they were blind to him. He saw Peter who denied him three times. And from the cross, Jesus saw his mother and put her in the Apostle John's care. This, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at me. And on that first Easter Sunday... Jesus appeared to two disciples on the Emmaus Road, and those disciples couldn't see Jesus. He's standing right next to them. He's speaking with them, but they can't see him. Pain does that. Pain can prevent us from seeing God, and, and pain can also be a reason for seeing God. At the breaking of bread, their eyes were opened, and they saw and they understood. We're not our hearts burning with us. While we were on that road, they said. And they saw. And now, now at his ascension, and then the sending of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we're the body of Christ. We're his presence on earth today. And he's looking for people to love through our eyes, through our vision. He sees us so that we can see, clearly see, and be used by him to see others. Yes, yes, here's where we are. In Christ, God sees us, and God sees others through us. Can we be that church? Can we be that church that sees with God's eyes those in the desert, those Hagars among us, those who have to isolate at water wells because no one else will welcome them? Can we be the people with spirit endowed sight to see and sense the pain and disruption of a world that sought to be on its own? And can we look on others with the eyes of Christ? Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What does that mean? It means God's eyes see us and God's eyes see others through us. In Christ, through his spirit, I now see with his eyes. I see where he is looking, how he is looking who he sees. And what a privilege that is. 
So back to Nicole Johnson. Who said that she spent some time with some friends over dinner celebrating the return of another friend who'd come from a vacation in England. And this friend in England turned to Nicole and handed her a beautifully wrapped package and said, I, I got this for you. I want you to have this. And it was a book about the great cathedrals of Europe. And the inscription inside the book said, with admiration for the greatness of what you are building when no one sees. And inside this book, there's a story uh, about a wealthy man who went to visit the cathedral. It was under construction. He saw a worker way up in the rafters, way up. And that worker was carving a tiny bird on the inside of a beam, way up high. And the wealthy man was puzzled. He said, what, why are you spending so much time carving that bird into a beam that will be covered by the roof? No one will ever see it. To which the worker replied, God sees. God sees. And Nicole said, after reading that, it was almost as if I heard God whispering to me, I see you. I see the sacrifices that you make every day, even when no one around you does. No act of kindness that you've done. No cupcake you've ever baked. No last-minute errand is too small for me to notice and smile over. You are building a great cathedral Right now, you can't see what it will become, but I see. I see. Oh, Windsor Road women. As mothers, you are building great cathedrals. Of, of course, you feel invisible some days, but one day in the new heavens and the new earth, the world that God is recreating will marvel and give glory to Jesus, not only at what you have built, but at the beauty of your sacrifice, so very visible to the God we worship, the God of the well, El Roy, the God who sees. Amen.